0: Good morning. My name is Arlene and I'll be reading today's scripture, which comes from second Corinthians chapter 5, 14 through 21. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word for the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore all have died and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And now let's give our attention to the preaching of God's word.
1: Thank you. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Charlie. This, uh, this passage here toward the latter half of Second Corinthians chapter 5 is so packed, it's so majestic. I'm going to do my best, and we're answering this question. And let me ask you this question from the outset What is the gospel? What would you say it is? What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? I've been a pastor about 30 years, grew up around the church, been around the church for quite a long time. And I must tell you, I do not assume that people who grew up in a church know what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, a lot of people grew up around church or synagogue or temple or any religious background or maybe a a school, have some distorted, weird version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many people, unfortunately, are allergic to an abusive form of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many have been brainwashed into a cultic or political, Americanized version of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A lot of people actually aren't ever hearing are understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word evangelical, who are these group, this voting block called evangelicals? Well, the Greek word for evangelical, did you know comes straight from gospel? And sad to say, the first associations, the most popular associations with evangelical Christians today has everything else to do with everything else but the gospel. So again, what do you say is the gospel? What do you believe about that gospel? Is it gospel to you? Gospel means good news. And if so, as we say and the scriptures, keep announcing over and over and over again, if it is gospel to you, it changes everything so profoundly, irreversibly, like no other power can. So, what is it? In our passage, Apostle Paul presents the gospel of Jesus in at least four beautiful ways. Why does he do it in four ways? I'm not a jeweler, but if you're holding up this most dazzling, priceless diamond and you hold it up into the air and you want to gaze upon it, you want to appreciate, and then you want to articulate and actually share. In the beauty of this priceless jewel, well, you're gonna go on and on and on to explain it from different angles. The gospel of Jesus Christ was most precious to Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, The gospel is, doesn't carry, doesn't contain, doesn't just unveil, it actually is. Uh, that's quite a statement that the message of the gospel equals the power of God to save Jews and Gentiles, anyone in all of the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ is actually all the resources. It's the seedbed. It's the seedbed of all of Christian life and all of the world's renewal from the beginning to its end. That's why at this church we believe That for your life to most profoundly change and for the world to be renewed, we must not just keep going back to the gospel, but we must grow in the gospel and bear fruit of the gospel. In other words, the gospel is the center to Paul's life and ministry. Wouldn't it be bad that if our lives and our church is founded on the same foundation? So this gospel just keeps rolling I mean, it just keeps rolling off his tongue keeps rolling off his pen in first corinthians chapter 2 verse 2 apostle paul says i determined to know nothing among you translation i spoke about nothing else more i spoke about nothing else more emphatically more passionately it is absolutely the most important thing i could ever communicate or get across what is that that christ Jesus was crucified and that is the gospel So Apostle Paul was known, and we can learn from him, to explain this gospel with absolute clarity. Okay, for those of you who are teaching, I was challenging and also thankful for all of our teachers, our stellar teachers who uh, teach our next generation, our children. If it's not crystal clear to you first as a teacher, I assure you, most likely it will come out exponentially foggier to your audience that's so it's tough to teach sometimes. Can you explain it to an eight-year-old? Is the gospel of Jesus Christ crystal clear to you? Apostle Paul unpacks it with simplicity, but in its simplicity, there is profundity. And he is most of all filled and carried along and empowered by the Holy Spirit to communicate and spread this gospel to the Greco-Roman world as well as ours. I am hoping and praying that one of these four presentations of the gospel might hit you for the first time. Or for some of you, it might hit you in a new way. And I don't want it just to hit you with its goodness. I pray that our church would become ambassadors, messengers, reconcilers. We would go out and share the only message that is better than all other messages combined. Here's the first way that Apostle Paul speaks of the gospel. Verses 14 to 16. He says, it is a matter of life and death. It's a matter of life and death. In a company, in a church, we used to have a consultant. Maybe your kids sports activities. You get a coach. Any good consultant or coach? What do they begin with? Well, first let's identify the problem. What's the problem here? What is the problem here? What's the problem with humanity? Well, according to these three verses, it is a problem of identity and destiny. Where do I come from? Who am I? Where am I going? Missionary Lloyd Kim, who was here a couple months ago, suggested the day that you figure out why you were born, not just that you were born, is the day that your life takes upon a whole new meaning A whole new destiny. The problem, what is the problem here? A question of identity and destiny. Here's the solution that the gospel brings someone has loved you to the point of death. Someone has loved you to the point of death. Verse 14, Apostle Paul says, One has died for all. Verse 15, He died for all. It's poetic, it's rhythmic it's memorable that is the way it's kind of like his elevator pitch apostle Paul is used to he has really worked on it he wants it to be engaging when he presents the gospel someone has loved you to the point of death there's a surprising little hook though here if you pay attention to these three verses however after it says he died for all you would figure then what should follow right after well if someone died for me then I should just go live as I please that is not what it says he died for all since he died for you you all died do you see that since jesus died for you you all died died to what you died to yourself the gospel is that someone loved you to the point of death so that you might no longer live for yourself but live for him a matter of life and death what is true life what is everlasting life what is real life not to live for yourself but to live for the one who loved you to the point of death. A second way to unpack the gospel. Verse 17. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is or she is a new creation. What is the problem here? Here's What's the problem here? Every human being has psychological needs. You must be approved from the outside in. Someone else outside of your own heart must validate you. That is a natural, universal human ache. Everyone has emotional needs. You want to feel happy. You want to feel loved. Everyone has physical needs. You want all of your faculties to work. You want to be in tip-top condition. You want to be in optimal health. But according to this verse, your greatest problem is not psychological, It's not just physical. It's well beyond your emotional condition. It's existential. There is a more comprehensive and spiritual problem. A spiritual component to this. Namely, Apostle Paul says, we're all passing away. Everything about you is passing away. Everything around us is passing away. I had the privilege of attending and presiding over an unforgettable funeral yesterday. Reminded again. Doesn't matter who you are, where you've been. At the age of 37, tip-top condition, an army ranger, a top-ranking officer in all of his units overseas, heralded as a hero by fellow West Point grads. Impressive, to be sure. I'll never forget it. Oh, but the hearts that were broken by the mom and the dad and the sister, who are more heroic still, because their son, who basically lived out the Asian-American dream to its full, Passed away. All has gone. The old is passing away. All of it is decaying. What's the solution? New creation. New creation. Therefore, if anyone is in Jesus Christ, he or she is a new creation. Now I want you to notice the language of that. Don't you think it should say new creature? Why does it say new creation? That means the scope of the gospel is to bring about newness not only to individual souls or individual people, but whole communities, whole churches, whole cities, the whole cosmos. Did you know that Jesus Christ can bring about newness to the entire planet, the trees, the grass, the air, the climate? Do you know this is why only Christian people have a legitimate hope to work not only for spiritual salvation, the saving of souls, but to bring about such practical and physical help for physical needs. Mercy. Because there is a new age that will arrive, a new order, a new value system, a new king where it will never pass away. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's to bring life out of death. The problem is that we do not know why we were born and where we are going. The solution is someone has loved you to the point of death, so now you live for him, for he died for you. A second way of the gospel to describe it is we are all old and aging and passing away. We have an existential problem. The existential problem. I am no longer going to exist. We're all going into extinction, guaranteed. But God in Jesus Christ brings about a new creation. Here's the third. Verses 18 through 20. I'll call it reconciliation. Reconciliation. You can read it right there. All this is from God. Now, what's our greatest problem according to these three verses? Your greatest problem and my greatest problem, as painful and as brutal as it may be, is not your falling out with other people. It's not that your lover left you. It's not that painfully severed, Divorced, separated relationship. It's not. According to these verses, like cancer, like cancer, if you have a broken, unreconciled relationship with God, your Maker, this always spreads and it always kills. If you are not right, if you are unreconciled with God, that will spread and affect everything in your life. This is an experiential problem, is it not? Experiential problem. Every single human being, I don't need to have a deep conversation with you because the Bible tells me this is what happens every single one of you naturally is at least uncomfortable or nervous around God. Let's just start there. No one feels up to it or else you're deluded and you have a wrong conception of God. You're at least uncomfortable. Then the Bible goes on to say, you actively suppress, repress, you try to forget that there is God. Then you and I go about where we come up with mechanisms to defend and resist and rebel against God. The Bible actually diagnoses that the condition of every human being is in your heart of hearts. You are at enmity with God. You are hostile to God. Oh, you might say, pastor, what are you talking about? I'm not a hostile, violent person. Why would I be hostile to God? Because the most important person in your life the most important person you would like to take orders from the most important person you want to have comfort for and pride and power and approval for is you and for God to somehow come into the scene and to take up your whole life you know for every natural human reaction that is inconvenient to say the least that's a problem And here's your problem and my problem. You and I experience day in and day out this distance from God, this unease from God, this like formality with God. Some of you just get really ritualistic and religious and you do a lot of things, but actually you're doing that to keep God at bay. All of us in our heart of hearts are really not comfortable. You're not enjoying. You're not at peace. You're not loving and being loved by God. That is your greatest problem and mine, is it not? What's the solution? What is the only solution? Here's the solution. Jesus Christ brings about reconciliation with God by giving up his own relationship with God the Father. Reconciliation means to become friendly again. Reconciliation means enemies become friends again. Have you ever experienced reconciliation? You Used to talk crap about the other person and that person did with you. All kinds of tension, nausea to your stomach. You avoided that person. Friction outright hostility, or just passive-aggressive slander. But then you get reconciled. You become friends again through some, yeah, tough steps. Do you know how sweet, do you know what a blessing it brings into your life to be reconciled with someone whom you are not friendly with? Imagine what would happen to you if that happened with God. A reconciliation where now God can call you his friend because the most consequential war that ever wages and it'll continue to wage till the day of your death that war will only cease by the stunning self-sacrifice of God's own son that he puts in the heat of battle He lays down his arms, he raises up his hands in surrender, and you shoot him down. But when you realize you shot him down, through him, in him, no more war, he turns enemies back into friends. Jesus Christ brings reconciliation by being cut off, unreconciled, excommunicated by his own father when he cried out at the cross. Matter of life and death. Matter of life and death, old to new, second, third, reconciliation, fourth, last but not least. Verse 21, verse 21. Are you right with God? If any preacher were to give his last final sermon to any group of people, this one probably would be it because I would ask you, this is, this is what I care about most. Are you right with God? Are you in right standing with God? What's your status with God? Does God know you? Do you really know God? On what basis do you know that? How do you know that? Shouldn't you know it? Don't you think there's... Is there anything more important than this? Are you right with God? Now, when I ask you that question. It actually has nothing to do with what you feel. Here's the problem here. It's legal and objective. Legal and objective. It's the legal and objective status of every human being. Uh, Michelle Yang, our preschool director today and their whole team with Priscilla and Andrew just putting on this incredible event after. I'm so proud of them. It's one of the best things CCSC has done It's all of our children's ministry. She would say, oh, pastor, you know, we should play tennis again. We used to play tennis a little bit. I see you walking around at Cerritos Park East. And I was like, sure, Michelle, let's do it. And then she said, oh, we should invite pastor Andrew Wang too. And I said, no, I'll play with you. I don't want to play with pastor Andrew. Because Michelle, I think if I play with you, I feel good about myself. If I play with Pastor Andrew, that guy's tall, he's athletic. I heard he played in high school. I don't like feeling like a loser, so let's not. And this triggered a thought when I was a freshman at South Torrance High School. There was all this hype about a 14, 15-year-old up in Palos Verdes coming down to play our number one player, number one tennis player then was state-ranked, California's one well, of the top-notch state, and he had a really high, incredible high winning percentage. And in waltzes in this player by the name of Pete Sampras. And I was a freshman, not on the varsity team, watching it behind a chain-linked fence. Pete Sampras never took off his warm-ups. Pete Sampras beat our number-one player, whom we looked up to. In about eight minutes, there was no match, there was no rallies. It was six to love. It was effortless. It was dominant. It was gross. And it's almost like before our jaws could drop down to the floor, it's like confusing. (laughs) Confusion might be the right word. just kind of shock and awe. You're dizzy. And then it turns into jealousy. Man, I really wish I could play like him. And then there's just sometimes pure hatred. Just hatred. Look, in the tennis world, in the finance world, in beauty, academics, science, health, the arts, video gaming, what is the dominant message? What's the dominant drive? Become the best you. Get to the top of the mountain. Succeed at all costs. Here's the problem. Should you become just like Pete Sampras? Can you become just like Pete Sampras? Maybe three to four people. Maybe three to four. Great. That's great. Back to Apostle Paul, though, in this one verse. He wraps and defines the gospel of Jesus Christ around the righteousness of God. Now, do you know what that is? The righteousness of God is a standard that God has. It's not your standard. It's his level, not your level. It's the bar that God has for you to attain to, to be right with God. When I ask you the question, are you right with God? Are you really right with God? I don't know what you thought of. I don't know what you would say. But Apostle Paul spells it out. For you to be right with God, you must be righteous like God. Righteous as God. We all know in this room, I hope you know in this room, you know, Pastor, there's so many parts of my life, maybe even just this week, it's pretty filthy. There's a second or third or fourth me out there that nobody knows about. It's sick. It's addictive. It's dark. I know it's destructive. I feel horrible. I have self-loathing about it. So I don't know if I have to argue the point today that you are not right with God and you cannot get close to God when you are at your worst. When you are obviously a sinful, prideful, angry, toxic, destructive, vengeful person, you and I should just instinctively know, "Mm, I don't think I'm right with God. But the righteousness of God says this, do you know how far you fall short when you are at your very best? You're tip-top best. The best day you've ever lived in your entire life. You never felt better about yourself. You can't even recall that day doing anything overtly bad. Are you right with God means, are you as righteous as God? It's His standard, not yours. So here's the message of the gospel. For you and I to be right with God, You don't have to just become like Pete Sampras. You have to become just like Jesus. Just like Jesus. Perfectly righteous through and through. Not only in your actions, but in your thoughts and in all of your intentions. So, who's in? Who will do this? Shall we try? Here's a solution, the only solution, substitution. Substitution. You need a substitute. Oh, I remember my freshman year. Oh, Harold, if I could play like Pete Sampras, My life is set. The fame, the applause, the riches, the rewards, the attractions. But what if Pete Sampras turned around after that match, never tucking off his warm-ups, looks at me, for some reason has some pity upon me, and says, hey, Harold, rest of my life I'm going to play for you, huh? Huh? Yeah, rest of my life, everything I win, all the acclaim, all the applause, I'll play for you, and I'll just give it to you. Now, if that were not marvelous enough to have a substitute player from whom I get all his winnings, according to chapter 5, verse 21, it is doubly so here. The gospel of Jesus Christ, there is a double substitution, or what ancient theologians call a double imputation. Follow with me this one verse. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. That's the first half. That means God imputed, imputed that language in the scriptures is simply this. He just takes all my debt of sin, that crushing debt, my unrighteousness. Hmm? He counts, he takes packages and then he just dumps it on Jesus. God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin. My crushing debt of righteousness is fully paid by a substitute through his priceless life being offered to death on a cross. He take my place, he takes my place. That's the first substitution. My debt, my sin, put on Him, just transfer it and crush Him for a substitution. Second half of the verse, so that in Him, Jesus Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. That means God takes in packages the whole, sufficient, perfect, lived righteousness of Jesus, the sinless one. He takes and packages that and then he counts and credits that on me. My sin put to him, puts him to death. In him, I am treated and rewarded on the account of his life not mine so the second substitution is this I take his place I take his place it's as if I lived his life I get blessed and loved and rewarded infinitely and eternally so because of his righteousness not mine. Here's what A.W. Tozer once observed. I thought he put this so well. The only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness we can ever have is his. Oh, my friend, just pick one. Pick one of these four Godless gospel presentations. This last one, I believe, is where it culminates. It's my favorite. It's my go-to. Memorize it. Point people to it. Read it. Refer to it. Mention it. If you just want a one verse elevator pitch summary of what how good and precious and glorious the gospel is, double substitution. Oh dear friends, we're all dying because you do not know the gospel. The gospel is substitution, it is not imitation. The gospel is substitution. It's not inspiration to become a better version of you. The gospel is substitution. It's not transformation first. Change yourself, clean yourself up, and then God will love you. No, you got it all backwards. The gospel is substitution. The gospel isn't even about you. It's not about your self-improvement. It's not about you at all. It's all about who he is and what he did for you. Substitution, substitution. He took my place, I take his, and therefore in him we become the righteousness of God. Verse 18, Apostle Paul writes, all this is from God. Verse 19, God was reconciling the world to himself. Verse 21, for our sake, He, God made, the only actor, the only central figure when it comes to the business of saving people is God. He's the only life giver. He's the only recreator. He's the only one that brings newness out of the old. He's the only one that reconciles. And he's the only substitute savior. Okay, so, so, pastor, are you telling me what, if anything, can I do then? Am I supposed to just do nothing? Am I just supposed to sit here and listen to this? What can I do? Great question. Because if this interests you at all, you should know what you should do. And here it is. It's just one thing. I want you to picture the gospel of Jesus like this, the purest fountain of eternal life. A God-given oasis in the middle of a desert. And if you drink from this fountain, you will live forever with God. And what do you do with a fountain like that? So precious, so pure, so plentiful. What should you do? Here's the only thing you should do. You should turn toward it, Stop going thirsty and dying. Maybe kneel down and take a drink from it. What should you do with the fountain of salvation that God just gladly supplies? Take a turn toward it. And take all that you want from it until your heart is full. From the first day you come to Jesus. To every day, you need to come to Jesus. Here's what the ancient prophet, prophet Isaiah once called us to do Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. What is the one and only thing you should do? Turn toward the fountain, get on your knees. And just take a deep drink until your heart and you're satisfied and your soul is full. To ignore this fountain. To be indifferent to this fountain. To be too busy about this fountain. To refuse to drink from this fountain. Do you know what that means? You are drinking from other fountains that all kill. Or, as some maybe religious people are prone to do, is God has offered this fountain of eternal, forever life. Religious people come along and say, Well, is it really substitution, Jesus? I I think it's good you did that, but here, let me pitch in 10%. Let me go to church. Let me be a good parent. Let me be good to my spouse. Let me serve or give in this way and volunteer. And do you know what the prophet Isaiah says about that? Is if you try to add to this fountain with your own good works or contributions, excuse the language, in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 it reads, it's like polluted filthy garments. It's like you're jumping into the middle of a perfect fountain and relieving yourself. What can you and I do? What's the only thing we should do? Take a drink. When you turn to the fountain of Jesus Christ, the Bible calls that repentance. You turn to Him, you come to Jesus. And when you drink from Him, that's faith in action. Here's all you need to do call on the name of Jesus, call on Him. Pray to him. Say, Jesus, I need you to give me righteousness. You take my sin. I need you to give me life because I'm dying here. You take my death too. I need to drink from you, O oh, Lord. I believe, Jesus, that you save and you satisfy. And when you do, that's all you have to do. Turn and take a drink. Kneel down and drink. Come to Jesus. Because he's a perfect substitute. And when you drink by faith, when you drink in his life through prayer, the old is gone, the new has come. He will make you righteous in his sight. He will reconcile you with the living God. And life comes out of death. Let me close with this. How do you know you know this gospel? How do you know this gospel is your gospel? How do you really know it's that good to you? How do you know it's real to you? Let me ask the question one more time as we close. Are you right with God, my friends? On what basis are you right with God? Are you born again? Are you saved from the wrath? Are you saved from judgment to come? Are you a born again Christian? You might have heard of those cliches and language. Let me just ask you, are you right with God? Do you know you would pass the judgment to come in chapter 5, verse 10? Do you know how God in his absolute holiness, knowing everything about you, should actually welcome and forgive you? Is God personal and real to you? Does he make a difference in your life? Is this not just a ritual or is it a reality of a relationship with him? Are you right with him? And the most common answers that people will give, whether they go to church or not, is pastor, well, I'm a good person. I try to be good. I do less bad things. I vote this way. I don't vote for that. I volunteer for this I serve I give to this I don't give to that I feel like on my best days sure I feel really close to God on my bad days yeah I'll get back to that after I take some time to make it up to him and my friends if that's your answer if that's what you fall back on listen if you answer the question of are you right with God With the go-to answer of, well, I do this, or I did that, and I am like this, and I'm less like this, and I'm better than other people, I will suggest to you, you do not know the gospel. Not yet. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about you. It's not about what you've done or didn't do. It's only about the one who's a substitute, Savior. Savior. The gospel is the power of God to save. All blessings, all assurances, all Christian growth and church growth flow from what he has done for us. It's about him and it comes from him. It comes from nowhere from here. And when this gospel breaks and really, really gets to work in our lives, when you really know that you know the gospel... And the gospel is the greatest news you could ever hear or share. Chapter 6, verse 1, Paul charges us with this. Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him, then we will appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Oh, my dear friends, substitution. Fall back on a substitute. Don't fall back on yourself. Stop falling back on yourself. Fall back into his arms. And when the grace of God that unilaterally saves sinners like you and me, when he worked his whole life off to love and forgive you into eternity, Paul says, you and I are going to get to work for him. Oh, we'll work like never before than we ever have, but we'll work for him. For this grace of God. This grace grows us to become just like him. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves sinners, that gives hope to the hopeless, strengthens the weak, relieves those who are thirsty and hungry, gives us, O oh Lord, All that we most need. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would bring about responses of repentance and faith. That you would bring about fruit of your gospel. Hear us this day, for we pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.